Hello and welcome to Leaders to Go, a podcast series brought to you by Sports Business Journal, Leaders in Sport, and the Esports Observer. My name is Chris Hanna, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Esports Observer. Right now, you are listening to Conquering Geek Culture, and together with my guests, I will examine how digital entertainment and popular culture impact the sports and esports industry. Hear from the leaders who spearheaded culture and the ones driving it today, and learn what you need to know in order to not lose touch with today and tomorrow. Today's episode will provide you with unparalleled insights into the esports ecosystem and investment landscape. I'm joined by Jens Hilgers, who's often titled the godfather of esports. Jens, thanks for joining me here today. Sure. Thanks for having me, Chris. So Jens, the godfather of esports, what do you make of this title? And can you just provide a little bit of insights into you know, what you're doing right now and how you got into esports? Well, um, it's it's a flattering title for sure. Um, am I sort of should I be the person to to carry such title? Um, I, I'm not sure. I, I keep telling people that technically, um, it I, I can't be such godfather because esports really truly started in the 70s, uh, and it started in sort of arcades where players would sort of compete on arcade machines against each other and set high scores and determine winners and play for prize money even even had the first video gamer association in the 70s in the US now that was so the decade i was born so technically i can't be that person now i think uh, there's some people that uh, kind of attribute that title to me because i've been in esports for a fairly long time um, i started my path in competitive video gaming in the late 90s. Um, it was sort of the, I think, the natural evolution of my interest in everything geeky, computers, personal computers. As an avid video gamer, uh, my interest for computer networks and then the internet and the evolution of video games, I sort of arrived at online multiplayer games. And, and I think with with experiencing these games, I found my love for esports. Nobody called it esports at that time, by the way. Um, nobody called it esports in, in, in the 70s. It was sort of competitive video gaming, video athletes and whatnot. I think the term esports only came somehow together in the maybe early 2000s even. And I think it was the press or the media that actually came up with that term. You co-founded ESL. Right. And you did that very early on. And if, if you look at this today, you know, probably people heard of ESL. People know kind of, you know, what ESL is, you know, organizing tournaments, creating these massive events. But when you started this, like the world looked completely different. What got you into building this? Well, I think it was sort of the, the interest in providing a solution for a problem that I had myself. I think it was Quake that was the game that really changed really my life. Quake for me was that game, competitive multiplayer game that really inspired me to build stuff. And there was so much like, like Quake was like a sandbox. It was, it was, it was just this game where you could do a, so many things with it. Like we would set up our own servers in a local LAN or sort of on the internet. We would configure the server. We would install mods. We would build mods. We would kind of design our own skins in the game. Like we had 
I remember these times when we build our own skins and we had meetings with our clan, like at that time we called them clans, not teams, right? And then uh, we would just hang out in, in maps and kind of do photo sessions and share the photos on IRC, which is the modern day, uh, the, the old days Discord. With all these things that you were able to do with this game, there was things and services you could build that were appealing to the community of people that were playing the game. And like one thing I did is in the late 90s, I built the first kind of hourly based game server rental for Quake. So you could kind of go on a website, it was called clanserver.de, and you could just kind of go there and say like, I want a Quake server and I want it for two hours. And then you would get that server readily set up with your password and you could sort of share it with your friends and, and have, I don't know, a client fight. So you really early on basically provided infrastructure to people to play competitively? Yeah, exactly. And, and, then, and, and sort of the league was then a part of it. So it was the late 90s where I, I basically started with a website called gamers.de. That was the first website I built. I'm sort of a software developer by training. And um, I built this website to, to help people that love those games that I love to find news and information and new patches and whatnot about these kind of games. And, and Gamers.de then uh, was starting to acquire more websites and to add more websites to what I then called the Gamers Network and became sort of an aggregation of about 120 kind of sites that covered all these games, Quake, Command and Conquer, Half-Life, and also would offer services to them. And amongst those sites was, was a site that was called Deutsche Clanliga, German Clan League one of the most professionally organized. And when I say professionally organized, we're talking about two or three people running kind of very simple bracket-based tournaments and, and league-based uh, tournaments. And uh, this this was sort of the, I'd say, the, the spark that then in its evolution led to ESL. Like ESL was basically the successor of what Deutsche Clan League was. And I think we came up with a name First, in 1998 or 1999, at that point in time, it was called ESPL, actually, Electronic Sports League. I think we got a cease and desist letter from ESPN at that time um, for, for using that name. And then we had to change it to ESL. And I think generally, like that's, I feel like that's the most powerful way to get a company started, by, by solve something where you sort of intrinsically feel uh, you solve your own problem. When it started to professionalize, what was the environment like back in the days? It, it was niche and uh, it was subculture. And it took an awfully long time to break out of this um, subculture and out of this niche, as we all know. But it, it was hard at that time to commercialize stuff. Um, esports, even in the early days, was depending to a big extent on sponsorship and advertisement revenue. It was terribly hard to find somebody who would truly go out and uh, put money on the line for tournaments or sort of content and uh, services around it. The first companies that would sort of look at it and jump at it was Intemix, was the Intels of this planet. And I want to say Intel has been transformational for ESL. And by that, I think for esports, they really were out there uh, from the very beginning. And they have been for ever historically the largest supporter of what ESL did. I think like the real, the real big stuff with the Intel probably started in 2002. But other than that, it was like the people would produce the, the companies that would produce mice equipment, fairy fell equipment. And, and to some extent, it was game developers and publishers themselves, but only at that time to a very small extent because the, the business models that the business model and the operations model that games were sold at at that time and would be operated in were 
not compatible with um, what what esports is and wanted to achieve. So you just talked about the business model and the model that games were sold. So I think that that's almost like a really good hint at the free to play model. If you basically look back, you know, to what you just described, and you look at today, what do you think have been the transformational and fundamental changes in how gaming and esports is perceived? You know, to make it what it is today. I think sort of looking at those last 20 years, I think it was three main factors that mostly contributed to esports breaking out into mainstream alongside video games becoming pop culture. And that is number one, the change in business model from the retail model video games companies were using, applying in producing revenue where you would produce that game, you would have a budget for producing the game, you would sort of get to the point where you launch it, you would probably distribute it through retail. And uh, then when, when, when you sort of, uh, when you sort of hit your first two, three months of sales, then typically sort of the, the, the sales peak for a game would be over and the game would get like two or three or four patches. And then you'd, you'd be done. Like you, there's probably a long tail, but it's fairly small. It is the change to the service model, to the games as a service model and the free-to-play model in particularly, which sort of uh, comes along with the games as a service operations model that entirely changed on how a game developer and publisher would, would look at esports. When we organize sort of tournaments and, and competition and create storyline around games, then inevitably there is more longer-term interest around a game. And when that happens, a game will become more sticky. People that have poured so much energy with their friends into the game and, and kind of falling for these stories and that content, they, they will not just want to leave that game for the next other game that will be sold by the same publisher probably six or 12 months later. When the model switched to free-to-play, all of a sudden, those developers using the free-to-play model understood like, if players play these esports tournament and, and they sort of create this ecosystem just by themselves where they have all these different sort of player engagement hooks through competitive play, then they stick around in my game. And if they stick around in my game, they will kind of increase the revenue they spent. And sort of my, my customer lifetime value increases. My player retention increases significantly. And they will also most likely keep their friends in there and by themselves acquire other friends to join this great game that they have so much fun in. So instead of esports, all of a sudden became um, known as being a great customer retention vehicle, as being a great customer acquisition vehicle. So developers and publishers would start to pour more money into esports. Just in case, you know, there's someone who can't follow. So basically what happened is publishers switched the model from a, I don't know, $60 retail game to, hey, here's my game for free. And then through microtransactions, prolong the sales cycle. The longer you play something, you know, the more money you're likely to spend. That's an assumption. And I think Riot Games did really, really well with League of Legends to just prove this assumption. If this is one of the catalysts, you mentioned there's uh, three reasons. What are, what are the other two? So the second one would then be uh, what I want to call the democratization of esports content distribution. So one of the biggest challenges that I was facing with uh, ESL when sort of running it was 
how do I get this content that I have here with all these tournaments out there to the audience, um, like to the people that I believed would all love to see the live content. In like 2000 to 2007, eight, uh, like how did you get live content, live video content to people? Well, it, it was traditional linear TV that would do that to begin with. And on over the internet, we had these clunky pieces of technology that would be called real real media. Microsoft um, had Windows Media. And, and these pieces of technology, while they were somehow working, they were like a horrible user experience. They were a horrible admin experience, like to set them up and kind of scale them was uh, like uh, nasty. But it was also difficult to for, for the user. There was constant codec issues, like compatibility issues and whatnot. Like it was not a great user experience. So it was not a one click, I can, I can watch something. Just like I turn on my, my, my TV and I can see something. So kind of getting content and esports in the first place is live content out there in front of a larger audience at, at that time period was difficult with, with ESL. I was so frustrated by not, I believe there's a large audience out there. If they would see that content, they would be falling for it. And in my struggle to get it out there in front of enough people, I uh, actually was able to acquire an entire TV station and tried to build esports content distribution through um, linear TV um, with satellite and cable distribution here in Europe. Um, I think in Germany, we, uh, we reached about 10 million. That's about 30% of the German households at the time with that TV station. It was called Giga TV. It was the first sort of 24-7 linear TV station for esports and, and games outside of Korea at the time. I think that was about 2008, if I remember right. And, and that was sort of the struggle on how do I get my content out there in front of a large audience to get enough scale to actually attract advertisers. When you acquired a TV station, like was it just too early? Starting with Giga TV, airing those, we had 50 hours of new and original esports content in three different languages at the time, English, German, and Mandarin, actually. Publishing them on uh, Giga TV and through our Giga TV platform, uh, the experience and the learnings was that, number one, the audience out there was not as big as I had hoped to sort of be able to profitably run a, a thematic um, games-focused TV station. It was still a bit too early. At the same time, though, I think another challenge was that TV at that point was like, in, in Europe, we called it PAL resolution. In I think in the US, it was called NTSC. That was some measly like 500 times, what was it, 700 pixels or what um, in resolution. It was looking, I mean, TV was looking shitty at that time, really, in, in comparison to what you had on your PC, where we had like uh, XVGA already, if I remember right, like it was 1024 times 768. So we sort of had this problem as well that a true gamer would probably prefer to watch it on his PC, maybe through a, a native connection even to the game, rather than switching to his TV set for a poor uh, video quality, significantly worse video quality. But come back to the point, it was like, like to get out there in front of a large audience, you had poor tools and technology available to distribute over the internet. And um, you over linear TV, it was too early still for this subculture uh, to, to really uh, run a profitable business on it. So 
it was truly just in TV and then actually Twitch, which came out of that, that sort of democratized um, video content distribution. And I'm using the term democratized because all of a sudden anyone who had games or esports content could, with just a couple of clicks, distribute that content to an audience that could access that content with just one click on in his browser. That was that was changing the entire game. Like all of a sudden, what was a cost and a huge operational burden for me when operating ESL, it was all expensive. It was cumbersome. It was it was difficult. And all of a sudden, the only thing you needed to do is you dump your content on Twitch. I want to really quickly just mention that. And you said, you know, Justin TV, which now is Twitch, which basically spiraled into Twitch. And if you look at Justin TV back in the days, it was it was literally just a person streaming his life, playing video games and like people wanted to stream video games. And now all of a sudden you have this one click access to content. We talk about uh, monetization models changed. Now all of a sudden I can play longer and spend more money and I can access content whenever I want. What was the third core driver that you see as a catalyst for esports today? So the third one is by far the most easy to understand. It is simply a generational shift. It is what, I'm, what I like to call digital natives to basically cover an ever larger part of, of society. I was probably one of the earliest digital natives It is sort of the generations starting born in the late 90s that truly grew up as digital natives and thereby getting exposed to video games very, very early on in their lives, communicating over the internet, spending time, social time online is native to them. When that is native, then sort of video games as a sport are easily native to you as well. And I think that's that generational tidal wave is what ultimately reached a tipping point in going into 2010 to 2020 and basically got esports and to, to some extent, to a big extent, video games to be able to call themselves pop culture because just the audience was so large that would be spending so much of their time natively with and around video games and thereby esports to a big extent that it defines more than just their entertainment time. You're also running an investment fund called Bitcraft. So what does Jens Silgers believe in right now looking at esports and what is your investment thesis for esports? We believe that esports is showing or representing or expressing a larger change in people's behaviors and how people perceive and, and spend their lifetime. Digital natives natively spend so much time in virtual worlds, which are video games, essentially, to the biggest extent. Quake, for me, was a virtual world. Instead of all these digital natives, younger audiences, generations growing up are spending this ever-increasing amount of time in virtual worlds and video games, they are melting these virtual worlds with the physical world around themselves. They're, they're becoming more of one, a synthesis. We like to call this synthetic reality. 
think this is a term that I feel is very powerful because it describes how the digital space, the simulated reality merges in your life with that physical reality. And we as Bitcraft, with our fund, invest in that particular paradigm change in, in synthetic realities, where esports is a substantial part of that, but a lot of other super exciting and interesting things happen if you basically say and understand and assume that an ever-increasing amount of people on this planet are spending an ever-increasing amount of time in virtual worlds. While originally we have invested heavier on the core of esports. Specifically looking at synthetic realities, looking at people spending more time in virtual worlds. Are we at the beginning or are we somewhat in it already? It, it depends a bit on what part of society um, you look at it, what demography you're looking at. Um, I feel like I'm in it for a fairly long time already. And, and I'm probably part of a very small cohort now, starting with the millennials. I think that is a very, very, very strong and broad cohort that, again, is taking an ever larger space now in society. Like the one thing that I think um, in the market and a misconception probably that I try to educate people on or, or sort of try to provide transparency around is the opposite to a digital native is a digital immigrant. The digital immigrant is the person who, if he uses the means of digital communication, it does feel alien to him. It does feel like he is, he is stepping over a certain line here and, and sort of using something that's not native to him and, and sort of, not really truly part of his rituals and habits to all extents. And I think like for, for esports in particular, there is sort of a bit of a misconception that esports can serve a larger audience beyond what, what I defined here as digital natives. I have tried that myself for a long time. I thought like the early days of, of, of esports and ESL, I thought like, well, if we just produce better content, if we just explain these games a bit better, like there's going to be a huge amount of people out there that will love this because it's such great entertainment content. And we tried that to a very big extent, but that wouldn't work. For the last 20 years now, I have not ever really seen that working. Like it doesn't matter how easily accessible we make even the easiest to understand esports games, such as Counter-Strike. It's a very fairly simple to understand game. On the surface, like the beauty about Counter-Strike, it's like it's really like an onion, like you peel away and peel away and it gets deeper and deeper. But like you can understand it. You should be able to understand it fairly simply to begin with. It is incredibly hard to get people passionate about it that would just not have been growing up with video games. What we're seeing right now with this unprecedented crisis that we're in the middle of is at least to some extent getting digital immigrants to appreciate virtual worlds, to appreciate uh, sort of these truly digital and social experiences in a different light. I think there's a certain, certain level of adoption that would not, not just have been possible at all um, in sort of this part of society without this crisis. I think there's at the same time a certain accelerant as part of what we're in right now and, and how we have to sort of spend our, 
our daytime right now. Um, you know, we can spend our daytime and, and keep close with the people we like and 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 in, enjoy life somehow. But fundamentally, very core answer to your question: we're in it. The younger part of society is in it much deeper already. Um, the older part of society is sort of has tip to toe in it and will probably not kind of sink much more in it than that. I mean, you wear many hats, so you're also co-owner of a team, G2 Esports. Can you just share a little bit of experience of your journey with G2, like when you started and where it's today and how you look at esports from a team angle? It was the time when with, with ESL, sort of we, we initiated a, a strategic uh, M&A process that was like, I think, 2013, if I remember right. It was an, a process that took quite some time, might have been early 2014. And ultimately, we sold the majority of, of ESL. The sales process was culminating in the sales of the Swedish Modern Times Group, a European um, media company listed on the Swedish Stock Exchange uh, in 2015. And phasing out and, and then stepping down from the board as part of that sales process, um, for me, was something that was forcing me to think like, what's what's next really? And reflecting all my time in esports and the developments in esports and uh, sort of finding myself in an increasing number of calls and discussions with investors reinforced my excitement about esports just because ESL sort of for me felt like well you've you've accomplished so much but then at the same time I turned around like actually it's so little in the grander scheme of things like that that high level hypothesis that I would put in front of myself again and again is like esports will dominate sport entertainment I was not so much concerned with the question when. I was more like it's it's going to happen. It's an in inevitability. So I I was deeply convinced I need to become part of an esports team in order to make better investment decisions because esports teams would be a central part of this ecosystem. And I was looking for an opportunity to invest in one. And I was very very fortunate to uh, basically find um, Carlos Rodriguez, uh, aka Ocelot, um, and be able to sort of partner up with him and and build G2 Esports. That was part of the entire sort of phase out out of ESL and focusing on building more assets companies in the esports space, including the entity that was the esports observer then was actually one of my first investments. I think it was 10,000 bucks that I invested also end of 2014 if you look then at teams, right, and you take it as a kind of learning because you want to be at the pulse and you want to understand, you know, how the ecosystem kind of works and where, how teams can grow and where they can grow to. Will esports teams be worth a billion dollars anytime soon? Like, is it realistic that an esports team hits a billion dollar valuation in a, like a handful of years? I think that's a stretch. I am very optimistic on the future of esports teams but i will also say that i don't think we ultimately see the business model and what esports teams will look like in 10 20 years from now already um today esports teams will continue to find their ideal 
business model, operations model going forward in the next years, as do leagues and as do publishers, developers that in the space. This this is all still coming together and it's it's not played out and, and sort of shaked out. It's a, it's a couple of different approaches between teams and leagues and and, and IP holders that are uh, seen in the space. And this is big experiments on, on how the interaction and the relationships between these three big parties and the players, by the way, um, is, is playing out. Like traditional sports didn't come up and come together over just 10 or 20 years. Um, it took many decades for soccer, basketball, um, football to organize itself to find the ideal operations model and to find true long-term commercial success. At the same time, though, there are some larger challenges, which is esports are mostly global to begin with. So how, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with all these differences um, in how traditional sports worked globally in different continents and different geos and, and sort of apply that best to esports potentially should you actually apply that to esports? Wouldn't it be better if esports works in a different way? All of these things we, we see playing out in front of ourselves. So while I'm bullish on the long-term future of esports teams, and I do believe that esports teams will become billion-dollar assets at some point, I don't think that's going to happen in the next two, three, four, five years. As esports, and we come back to the fundamental thesis, continues to eat share of what is sort of sports entertainment and continues to consume more entertainment time of an ever larger audience, it is an inevitability. Everyone's interested in investing in esports. Everyone wants to get involved. You know, people look at the space. Probably not everyone understands the space. Is there one piece of advice you want to give to everyone who's kind of looking to get into this space and, you know, somehow engage with this audience? I would say, number one, you're investing in a space where you're better off if you have people that truly play and love video games and ideally esports themselves and are on your side when you do these investments. The That might be your kids. It uh, might be the neighbor's kids, but like try to be close to the consumers and the people and, and the audience that is out there and, and part of this um, entertainment offering. Number two, have a long-term perspective with this. Number three, uh, there's many different ways on how to sort of play this space as a financial investor. You can invest in the public markets. You can find stock. You can find companies that are fairly exposed to esports, um, have a higher sort of part of core esports and or video games as part of their offering. Um, we have invested quite some time ago in um, an investment manager that launched the first esports ETF. Public markets are a good way to uh, play the space. Um, if you feel like you would like to be closer to individual companies and you like the kind of swings and the up and downs of an entrepreneurial journey, particularly in the early stages, you might be investing individually in selected startups. Here, though, the level of education that you need to make a good decision is considerable. And you should obviously try to invest in a portfolio and just not make one or two picks. The other alternative is funds that invest into venture capital funds that invest into the space. 
Should you also invest in an esports team as part of that? For somebody who's really excited about the sport, for somebody who really believes in the future of esports, I, I think you should somehow have an exposure to an esports team as well. And, and again, there's the private side and there's the public side to do that as well. Thank you very much, Jens. You're welcome. <laughs>